Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It should be page 897 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. Hear now the inspired, infallible, authoritative, holy word of God as you stand. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me briefly. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken Long ago, at many times and in many ways, you spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken to us by your son. And we thank you for the living word of Christ, the Old and New Testaments that we have from you. Lord, we admit our great need of your word, O oh Lord. And this specific content and topic and message you have for us from your word, Lord, is 
so needed in our lives. So we pray you'd renew our minds, you'd exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and conform us more and more into his image through your means of grace. It's in his precious name we pray, amen. Well, it's a great blessing to be with you all this morning. My name is Timothy Brindle. I had the wonderful delight and honor of being with many of the men of the church since Friday. Uh, I spoke on the topic of God's good design for sex. And so this morning, I have a sermon for the entire congregation summarizing what we heard this weekend on God's good purpose for sex, and yet how the serpent, Satan, and our own sin has distorted and perverted God's good gift of sex. And yet the Lord has not left us to ourselves He has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to purify us and purify this good gift of sex for his glory. We see the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians who lived in a city drowning in sexual immorality, very much like the United States of America today. And we notice that Paul addresses the topic of marriage and sexuality quite in depth. And let's first think about the purpose of sex, which is seen in our passage. The purpose of sex, God's good design, his good purpose for sex. We see this in verse 16, where Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, referring back to what God created when God created marriage and sex for his glory and his praise. Notice he quotes Genesis 2.24, as it is written, the two, man and woman, male and female, Adam and Eve in marriage, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, he who has clung to the Lord, he who holds fast to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. Paul's point is that clinging to your spouse in the holy covenant of marriage, in sexual oneness, was always meant to be a picture of holding fast clinging to the Lord, being joined to the Lord spiritually. After God made Adam and Eve, we read that a man must leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And as a result, the two will become one flesh. Having a bit of trouble with the clicker here. Thank you. So the covenant of marriage was designed by God from the beginning as a real life picture of God's intimate covenant with his people, a close relationship with his people, intimate heart to heart relationship, God's promise of faithful devotion to his people and their response of faithful, obedient loyalty to him. Not a sexual relationship, 
that God's people would have with him. One that sex is pointing beyond itself to deep intimacy. As Adam was to cling to Eve and hold fast to her in the covenant of marriage, this same word, to hold fast, to cling, is intentionally used by the inspired author Moses over and over again for how God's people must cling to him, hold fast to him in worship. Notice Deuteronomy 10.20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Be amazed by him, that means. Reverence him in awe. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Cling to him. In Psalm 63, 8, after David talks about the Lord satisfying his soul, he says to the Lord, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. So just as we cling to the Lord in love and are embraced by his love for us, so marriage is meant to be a beautiful picture of that intimacy between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Paul calls this gift of marriage a blessing from God in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. We see the Lord, call, uh, Paul calls it a gift. And sex is one of the ways that a husband and wife enjoy their oneness with each other. Next slide, please. So what is the ultimate purpose of sex? The great joy and pleasure of sex was always meant to be a small picture of the joyful, pleasurable, greater intimacy and greater non-sexual pleasure of knowing the Lord and being loved by him in never-ending oneness. He who is joined to the Lord, hold fast to the Lord, is one spirit with him. I'm quite grateful for my 18 years of marriage with my beautiful wife, Floriana. And we are one. We like to joke that we're one flesh, one mess. One flesh, one mess. We're called to be one in mind. Our purpose should be singular to spread God's kingdom together. We're called to be one in our emotions. I'm called to rejoice with her when she's happy, to mourn with her when she's sad. But notice the scripture says to be one flesh. All of that is meant to culminate in the glorious gift of sexual intimacy in the marriage bed. I'm called to know her intimately. And the outward picture of this knowing is the pleasure of knowing her sexually. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 talks about us giving ourselves to each other in the marriage bed. My body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to her, and vice versa. And the gift of sex is a wonderful guard against sexual immorality. And so the purpose of sex in marriage was always to point beyond itself to God's covenant relationship with his people. And the fruit of our love in sexual union results in what? Oftentimes, as we see in the next slide. 
children, offspring. In the next chapter, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says children born in a Christian family are holy, set apart. But my two-year-old doesn't believe in Jesus yet. Yes, I know that they aren't holy yet and that they haven't become saved, but in one crucial way, they're set apart by the Lord because he's given us his promise of blessing and he's our God and he's their God. And he has given us children to teach them his word so that we might spread his kingdom from generation to generation, spread his kingdom the good old fashioned way. I was looking for a graphic that had not just one child holding the mommy's hand, but eight to show the Brindle family. I couldn't find any. But spreading the kingdom of God is meant to be a legacy from generation to generation. That was God's original design, and it's still God's design, brothers and sisters, in Christ. So is sex designed by God for the pleasure of the husband and wife? Or is it designed by God to reflect his pleasure and intimacy with his people? Or is it designed by God so that we might have children who know the Lord? The answer is yes to all of the above. But surprise, surprise, my wife and the blessing of sex with her, as amazing as it is, and it gets better every year, it can never, ever fully satisfy us. If doing sex the right way, according to God's design, was not meant to fully satisfy us, how much more doing sex the wrong way, outside of the covenant of marriage? That's because even in its creation, before the fall, as important as sex is as a part of us, as image of God created, male and female, central to who we are as image of God. And as important as our sexuality is to God. And as crucial as sex is in marriage, it was never intended to be the main purpose of our existence. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And one of the ways we can tell we were not primarily created for sex as our all in all is that, are you ready? Get this, brace yourself now. You might need to hold on to your seat. Guess what? We won't have sex in heaven. We won't have sex in heaven. And guess what? We won't be disappointed because what sex was meant to point to will have arrived in fullness when the lamb takes his bride, the church, in never-ending intimacy, in worship, in face-to-face -face communion with the Son of God who loved us and saved us. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 20, in the resurrection, they, husband and wife, neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's no marriage 
between a human man and a human woman in, mar- in, in heaven anymore. And therefore, no sex. Because marriage will have given way to what it was pointing to all along, never-ending communion with our heavenly spouse, the living God, Jesus Christ. Still want to go to heaven? You should. And we see that our main purpose of our existence was never meant to be sex in and of itself from verse 13, where Paul talks about how the body, it's not meant for sexual immorality. Okay, I know it's not meant for sexual immorality, which is sexual sin, but what does the body exist for? Notice what it says. The body is for the Lord. It exists for the Lord, and he doesn't stop there. The Lord, that's Jesus, he exists for my body. Consider that the self-sufficient God who needs no one or nothing else outside of himself has so humbled himself and condescended into fellowship and communion and covenant with us that he says, I exist for you to worship me in your glorified body. And even before you're in a glorified body, in this broken, being restored body that we dwell in now. To emphasize the point, Paul in verse 14 says, and God, referring to the Father, raised the Lord, referring to Jesus, meaning he raised his body, and he will also raise us up by his power. God the Father will raise us from the dead just as he did his son on the third day when Jesus comes back to give us brand new bodies for sex. No! For never-ending, joyful worship with the Lord. And Floriana Brindle, my wife, will still be Floriana Brindle. She'll still be a female, and she'll have a glorified body as amazing as she looks now, but she'll be my sister in Christ, and that will be enough. God gave us bodies, even in this life, ultimately to be vessels and instruments of worship and fellowship with him. Speaking to those who believe in Jesus, in verse 19, the inspired apostle says, our bodies are a temple meaning God's house, his dwelling place, where he lives by his Holy Spirit for us to worship him. And because that's true, verse 20 says, glorify God in your body, which can also be translated, glorify God with your body. As our body parts are instruments and members to worship the Lord and serve him. This brings us back to creation. When God made Adam, he made him a priest, a worshiper, to worship God in the temple of Eden with his wife Eve, a priestess, where God walked about with Adam and Eve in fellowship. But because of sin, Adam and Eve were exiled, cast out from his garden sanctuary, But now in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his bride, the new Eve, 
We are his kingdom of priests in our union with the king priest. And so now the church collectively is his temple and individually each of us are his temple to worship the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, the Bible says your body is still a temple. But it's a temple for idols, for false gods. Because we were designed to be worshipers. So the question isn't if you're a worshiper. The question is what or who are you worshiping? What it means to be made in God's image as worshipers is that we're physical, spiritual creatures who have a body and inside our body is our soul. The inner man is the soul, the spirit, the heart, the mind that has desires and wants and affections. And those desires and affections of the soul are meant to be lived out with the body. Notice how much the Lord cares about the body, as we see on this next slide. The word body appears 10 times in 12 verses between 6.13 and chapter 7.4. The Lord cares about our body. God made us with bodies that put into action what's going on inside. With our bodies, we live out outwardly, tangibly, what our hearts want and desire. With our bodies, we will worship what or who we want, who we desire and love. And Satan, our invisible enemy, knows that our bodies are so important for who we are as worshipers and that our sexuality and our sexual organs and what we do with sex, how it points to God. And since he hates God, he's come after image of God and who we are as body and soul. And so he has attacked marriage and sex big time. And that brings us to our second point, the perversion of sex. We've seen God's purpose of sex, but this is Satan and sin's perversion of sex. I grew up calling people a pervert if they wanted to look at little boys in the bathroom or or. Uh, do gross things, but the scriptures use the word perversion and distortion for the twisting of God's good design. And we see the emphasis in this passage on the perversion or the twisting of sex with the repeated word sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? It's any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Sexual immorality is all unlawful sex. So to use our bodies for sexual immorality is a perversion, a distortion of God's gift of sex. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. It's related to the word in verses 15 and 16 for prostitute. That word is porne. Obviously, this is where the word porn comes from six times in our paragraph. So don't be deceived, Paul says in verse nine. No one who's sexually immoral, 
whose lifestyle is defined by being dominated by sexual immorality, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be in heaven. No one who's a slave to sexual immorality will inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not the only kind of sinner Paul mentions. Also, idol worshipers, idolaters, those who worship false gods instead of the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of the Bible. Idol worshiping is loving anyone or anything else more than the true God. If we want to know what are our idols, all we have to do is look at what makes us mad when we can't get it. What makes us have a grown-up tantrum when we can't get it? There you have your idol. Or idols. It's always in the plural. So neither the sexually immoral nor idol worshipers nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. Adultery, when a husband or wife has sex with someone else, not their spouse, outside the marriage. But notice Paul's intentional order. Sexual immorality, idol worship, adulterers. How can Paul jump from sexual immorality to worshiping idols and then go back to a sexual sin like adultery? Why is idol worshipers sandwiched in between sex sins? There's a handful of answers. One, idolatry is spiritual adultery against God. Idolatry is cheating on God. Plus, sexual sin is one of the main ways we're tempted to worship God, to worship a God replacement. Sexual sin is often an idol of choice. Sexual sin is often idolatry of other people or idolatry of self. Paul also is writing to the Corinthian church that lived in a wicked culture surrounded by pagan worship of false gods in Corinth that involved female and male cult prostitutes. And Satan has been behind demonic idols for thousands of years using idolatrous rituals involving sexual immorality And although people are not bowing down to statues as much nowadays, not much has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Oftentimes, our idols are the things we turn to for rescue from pain or for relief from stress or refuge from depression. And the temporary, quick-fix pleasure of sex outside of marriage, is often an idol that we run to. What did this look like for Tim Brindle at 14 years old? After my parents divorced, when I learned that dad and his new wife were moving away from my three brothers and I to Hawaii, I remember going up to my bedroom, 
breaking down in tears for 30 minutes and then saying, you know what? I'm going to pull out my pornography magazine. And that is how I'll escape the pain. Because in those moments, in that fantasy world, the pain seemed to go away for a few moments. God created sex to be enjoyable in the context of marriage, but I turned it into my idol, using it for my own pleasure, not according to God's design. And that was my daily activity as a teen before the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. What we do with sex is really a picture of our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to the Lord. How is your relationship with Christ? How is your sexual purity? That's a great way to measure it. If you do sexual activity outside of marriage, it's a gross and graphic picture of cheating on God. Again, adultery, the next sexual sin mentioned. Well, I'm single, Pastor Tim, so I'm glad that one can't define me. Moving on, please. Actually, not so fast. Our Lord Jesus said, everyone who looks at a female to lust after her, to imagine what you do with her body, to wish you could have sex with her, that person has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it's true for females lusting after men as well. And Paul isn't finished. It's not only sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery, but he moves on to homosexuality. Notice in this translation that it's men who are passive in same-sex relationships and men who practice homosexuality. Paul uses two words. Most of our English Bibles lump these two terms together. But this translation has both for us to see the emphasis Paul puts on homosexuality as a perversion and twisting of God's good gift of sex. Both partners in a homosexual relationship are guilty before the Lord. And although he specifically mentions men, it doesn't exclude women. And we know that's the case because of Romans chapter 1, which we'll look at in a moment. And if you're here this morning and you do not struggle with same-sex attraction, but you struggle with sexual sin of other kinds, don't think too highly of yourself because apart from God's saving grace, you ain't getting in and they ain't getting in. You're disqualified from the kingdom of God and so are those who practice homosexual activities. Heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners are condemned as lawbreakers before the holy, righteous judge of the universe. Plus, 
If you're a heterosexual sinner and you watch pornography, you already know how common homosexuality is in pornography. And you've probably approved of it. As Romans chapter 1 talks about. Paul wants to show that a, a more intense picture of trading away God in exchange for false gods is seen in homosexuality. So although the sexually immoral and adulterers and who are guilty of heterosexual sin are disqualified from the kingdom of God, there are degrees of wickedness before the Lord. And we see in Romans chapter 1, three times God gave them up because they refused to worship him. God, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, verse 24, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Lord giving people over to this kind of activity is a pre-judgment day expression of the wrath of God. Yes, the fullness of God's wrath is coming when Jesus returns in judgment on the day of wrath. But Romans 1.18 says, the already wrath of God is being revealed presently against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's seen when the Lord gives people and holds societies over to homosexuality. Isn't it interesting that I could be put in prison for reading this passage and also 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20 in Canada or England, possibly soon in the United States. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot lock arms with the pornography industry, with sex trafficking, and we cannot lock arms with the LGBTQ plus agenda or those who play games with pronouns. We must lovingly, humbly, boldly stand firm on the word of God. Satan knows sexual sins primarily against God. So his real goal, especially for us Christians, is to use sexual sin to wreck our relationship with Jesus. Notice in verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? We've been so united to Christ. We're so in Christ and he's so in us that doing sexual sin is dragging the holy Christ into it. 
May it never be, God forbid. Sexual sin is against Christ. Sexual sin is at the expense of others. It's objectifying and using others for our own selfish lusts. It's the opposite of love and humility and compassion. But sexual sin is also against our own body. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How destructive it is. No wonder it's usually listed first in Paul's list, lists of sex, of, of, of various sins, of the works of the flesh, and so on. Sexual sin promises to give you pleasure as if it will give you life, but it is literally destructive. It destroys the body and the soul in this life and then in the lake of fire forever. But God. How many people praise God for the buts, the but gods in the Bible? But God became a man to save us and purify sex through his work of salvation in the gospel. And that's our final point. The purification of sex. Jesus came to purify us and wash us to walk in purity. God the Son, in his infinite love for good people? No, in his infinite love for sexual sinners and idolaters and homosexuals. He became a man with a human body. And he never ever sinned sexually or in any other way with his body. Jesus Christ's human heart and mind and soul loved his heavenly father perfectly for 33 years. I did the math, that's 12,000 days. And he lived out the love from the inside with his body on the outside. And what did he ultimately do with his body? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. God the Father laid our disgusting filth on the body of Christ who gave his body over to be crushed and punished and crucified by his own creatures, to be killed on a Roman cross made out of tree wood that he made in order to fully pay for all our sins, to wash us, sanctify us, purify us, forgive us, make us holy and righteous before him, to be raised from the dead, to advance the broken, fallen human body to a place of glory, and to give his Holy Spirit to dwell in these bodies, to hold fast to us, to cling to us in union with him. And he will completely perfect and resurrect and glorify these bodies like his resurrection body, verse 14. How does God purify us? Verse 15, 
He makes us members of Christ. Verse 16, he makes his church one with him. Verse 17, he enables us by the Holy Spirit to cling to the Lord, to hold fast to Christ who holds fast to us by faith in Christ. Union with Christ is the gospel where we get Christ and everything in him. Jesus, the greater Adam, pays the marriage price for his bride, us, his church, all who put their trust in Christ, who were bought with a price. The blood of Christ is the dowry price. And the reason I said the gospel is union with Christ is because union with Christ gives us Christ. And according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, John Calvin's favorite verse is that because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, whom God made for us, wisdom from God. Namely, what's the saving wisdom? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is my justifying righteousness. Christ is my purifying holiness. Christ is my redemption. All of these blessings are ours in Christ. And so now, he gives us a new identity. Look at verse 11. This is who we are. And some of you were these things. What things? Everything mentioned. And we didn't even have time to talk about stealing and greed and drunkenness and slander and gossip and scamming, swindling. We were these things. That's who we were. But you were washed. And Paul is so emphatic in the contrast, he puts a but in front of every salvation word. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus says that if you repent, if you turn away from sin and trust in him as your rescuer, your Lord and Savior, you are no longer defined by these things in verse 9 and 10. Instead, you are defined by what he says about you. You must see yourself the way he sees you, covered in his blood and righteousness. You were those things but you were washed. Notice these salvation words are all passive. You didn't wash yourself, sanctify yourself, justify yourself. They're things that happen to us, the divine passive tense, scholars call it. It's what God has done in Christ for us. And let's briefly spend these last few moments looking at each of them. But you were washed. Jesus, the husband, washed and cleansed his bride, the church, by his spirit in his blood, causing her to be born again by the water and by the spirit, washed in regeneration in new life. Titus 3.5. Our baptism symbolizes this. We have been washed. We have a new nature. And notice the order. Next is sanctified. 
You'd think justified was next. But no, sanctified is next. Why? Why would Paul say you've been washed, referring to our regeneration when you were born again, you were sanctified, which means set apart from sin, declared holy, and made, begun to be made holy for God? So that Paul will open the letters, talking to the, open the letters of the Corinthian letters, saying to the holy ones, I know y'all are jacked up and messed up, but in Christ, you're holy ones, you're saints. Why would he put this before justification? Because sanctification is a two-sided coin. We love to think about progressive sanctification, God gradually, daily making us holy. That's important. That's crucial. But the only reason God can do that is because first, there's what's called definitive sanctification, where our old man was crucified together with Christ so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We've once for all been set apart from being slaves to sin. There's been a breach with sin. So that in one sense, we're already holy. And now we're being made holy. We've already been set apart from being slaves of sin. Jesus has already broken the power of enslavement to sexual morality, idolatry, homosexuality, etc. He's broken the power of those sins in our lives so that if you're in Christ, you're no longer captive by them, you're no longer defined by them, and they can no longer be your identity. And so we should never call ourselves a sexual immorality Christian or a gay Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian. And unfortunately, in my denomination, the PCA, there was a movement of people in churches that wanted to say, hey, can we just call ourselves same-sex attracted Christians? We're not acting out on it, but we're just being honest. We have these sexual same-sex desires and we just want to be honest. You're not being honest with who you are in Christ. No matter how much you wrestle or struggle with sin or tempted by it, it doesn't define you. This does. Such were some of you, but you are washed, sanctified, justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning based on his merit, based on his person and work, and by the spirit of our God, the Holy Spirit, taking the benefits Christ accomplished and bringing them to us by faith. And lastly, you are justified. You have been declared righteous, not guilty. Two judgment day verdicts on the day of judgment. Guilty or not guilty, justified. And guilty is not just a feeling, it's a fact based on God's record book in which he has written all our sins in his book. But for those who have repented and trusted Christ, that record was put in Christ's account and it's been paid in full. And now in God's record book, it's blank. It's all white. It, it's white out. It's read out by the blood of Christ. And the record is Jesus's 12,000 days of perfect living in your account so that you're declared righteous, not guilty. You'll never be condemned and judged by God since Christ was for you. 
And so now in Christ, we can use sex rightly in the covenant of marriage for the glory of God and for our joy. Or if the Lord calls us to singleness, we can glorify the Lord with our bodies in celibacy, which is also called a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Some of us are given that gift for our entire life. And isn't it striking that even us married folks who enjoy the good gift of sex, we're going to be like our celibate brothers and sisters in Christ, like the Ethiopian eunuch in heaven, where we won't desire sex anymore because it will give way to worship for the Lord. So what will you do today or tonight when you're tempted to sexual sin? What should you do? No, what must you do when tempted to sexual immorality? Spend some time thinking about it. Put one foot in and one foot out. No. Paul uses the word used in the Greek Old Testament for when Potiphar's wife grabbed Joseph. I'm outie finaudi, we used to say. I'm gone. Flee, run, and run to Christ. Resist the devil, he will flee. Sexual temptation is actually an opportunity to take refuge in Christ and get to know him better. Cling to the promises of God like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, unlike your feelings, oh, there's no way I can endure this. Up, oh, Actually, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Christ himself, the way. Yes, the promises in his word, prayer, lead us not into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Your pastors and elders, your brothers and sisters in Christ, reach out. Your friends, your spouse. So that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so, brothers and sisters, we've been given everything we need in Christ to glorify God in our body, to worship the Lord of love forever. Let's pray. Lord, we repent for our worldliness, Lord. Be being friends with the world is cheating on God, enmity with God. Lord, wash us and purify us by the precious blood of your Son. Empower us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to not only kill sin, but to live out your good design, Lord, for our bodies, for your glory, until you take us home, where sexual temptation will no longer be a thing, and where even your good design of sex will have passed as we worship the lamb who was slain forever. Continue to be glorified in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.